This week, I want to highlight three important papers. The first two, just because they're important. And the third, because yes, it's also important, but it doesn't necessarily fit the theme of this week's podcast. It doesn't match with the first two. However, the media did it again and messed up the headline for this third story. And I want to clarify why the study was important. So first, remember a couple years ago when the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force remained pretty neutral on whether or not all kids needed to be screened for autism? Their rationale was that there was no real evidence to show that earlier detection led to earlier intervention and earlier intervention then improved outcomes. They wanted this direct line. They envisioned a large randomized clinical trial design where some toddlers were screened and some were not screened, and then their outcomes were followed up a few years later. Many autism clinicians pointed out that deliberately not screening someone for autism was probably unethical, and actually, the science community decided that nobody was really paying that much attention to the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force anyway, since large professional organizations like the American Academy of Pediatrics and advocacy groups like ASF and Autism Speaks were all advocating for early screening of autism and other developmental problems. Well... Leave it to another country, this time Australia, to come up with a solution to a U.S. problem. While it was not a randomized clinical trial, researchers at the Olga Tedison Autism Research Center in Melbourne, Australia, compared the outcomes of kids diagnosed early, that is before 24 months, or later, which in their definition was after three years of age. They compared these kids on different measures like autism severity, adaptive behavior, and cognition or intellectual function. They found that those who were diagnosed early, cognitive scores were better, they showed less repetitive and restrictive behaviors, and were more likely to be in mainstream educational settings. Adaptive behavior, on the other hand, which is the is-doing rather than the can-do of abilities, was similar between groups, and so was autism severity. In those in the early diagnosis group, they required fewer educational supports. This is consistent with studies that show that during the first few years of early intervention, services kind of cost more money than if you don't give services. However, down the road, the kids that get early intervention need fewer supports, and there ends up being a cost savings over the lifetime of an individual. So here it is, earlier diagnosis, which presumably leads to earlier interventions, yes, does improve outcomes. That doesn't even end the important contributions by the same research group this week. They also examined how stable diagnoses are for those that receive an early diagnosis. Last year, as you remember, the Baby Siblings Research Consortium looked at stability of diagnosis at 18 to 24 months of age, and they found that they were incredibly stable. Almost everyone retained their diagnosis at three years of age. So if you get a diagnosis early, you'll probably still have it at three years of age. But about 50% of those siblings, those that are tracked carefully from a very young age, hovered around the diagnosis, showing signs like language delay and some social impairment until about three years when they received a diagnosis. So early diagnosis is stable, but the High-Risk Baby Siblings Research Consortium concluded that screening should not stop at two years of age. This week in Australia, researchers investigated the stability of a two-year autism diagnosis at four years of age. So only those that got the diagnosis at two years, how did they fare at four years? By waiting a little longer to say four years instead of three years, they could all find out whether or not some of them fell off the spectrum, so to speak, 
or reach what is called an optimal outcome. Again, most of the kids that got their diagnosis at two years kept that diagnosis at four years. Even in a more community-based setting compared to an infant SIB design, a diagnosis at two years is considered stable and doctors should not be worried about over-labeling if they were confident that the child has autism at two years of age. However, there was this very small percent of kids that met criteria for diagnosis at two years but moved off the spectrum or didn't kind of meet the diagnostic criteria for autism at four years. It was small, but it's worth looking at. And when I say they moved off the spectrum, it's not as if these kids who were diagnosed at two years of age just suddenly popped up with no issues at four years of age. They moved away from an autism diagnosis to something like a developmental delay or a language delay diagnosis. So it's, it's kind of still on the spectrum, but it's not considered ASD. So who were these kids? They were those that had better eye contact, could direct gestures and vocalizations, and had slightly better cognitive scores. They might possibly be more responsive to early intervention. And I want to be clear again, they moved into a developmental delay group. The researchers want to be clear that children across the spectrum can and should be diagnosed by 24 months of age or two years when the diagnostic picture is clear and when clinicians are confident to make this decision. They should use appropriate tools like the Autism Diagnostic Observation Scale and the Autism Diagnostic Interview in toddler preschooler algorithms. That instability in a minority of cases should not stop clinicians from making a decision of autism at two years. And my question is, is this minority of children who move from autism to kind of autism, again, a very small percentage, is this the percentage that the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force is worried about? And is this why they're concerned that the quality of research around early detection, improving early intervention, and later outcomes is somewhat flawed? I do want to thank Australia for two important studies that contribute to knowledge around the importance of early detection for autism. So I wasn't planning on talking about the major causes of autism this week, but there was kind of a debacle perpetuated by a newspaper called the Korea Daily. We received so many questions about this headline that I think I have to address it. I was going to save the findings of this study for a different week, but let's talk about it now. On Wednesday, a story came out in an online newspaper called Korea Daily that got picked up by the mainstream U.S. media. They were trying to highlight the amazing work by a team of researchers in Korea, and they said that this research team had discovered a quote-unquote major cause of autism. Unfortunately, instead of highlighting the interesting and revealing and potentially groundbreaking work by this project published in Nature, which is a very, very high-impact journal, now I have to do damage control. The end result is by using a false claim, Korea Daily is actually hiding the importance of this work because now I have to start with talking about the limitations and not the interesting findings that I believe should be followed up on and probably will make to the top 2017 research discoveries. So last week's podcast included an interview with Dr. Gil Sharon at Caltech, and it was about the role of the microbiome. The microbiome is the community of bacteria that live in your body and influence not just your GI function, but probably your brain function. I know what you're thinking, bacteria in your body, but bacteria help break down food, and yes, you have bacteria in your body that your immune system is fighting with. Some bacteria are good and some are bad. 
The microbiome isn't of just interest to autism researchers. The NIH has a large program called the Human Microbiome Project to help understand the role the microbiome plays in function of organs in the body and a host of different diseases and disorders. The researchers in Korea used an animal model to examine the balance between different bacteria in the body, immune function, and if altering one could lead a change in the other, and whether or not this can lead a change to behavior. First, they confirmed what other investigators have been studying for a while, that if a mouse is exposed to a virus during pregnancy, it secretes a cytokine, or a chemical of the immune system called interleukin-17, and that interleukin-17 leads to atypical behavior in the offspring or the babies of the mother. This, of course, is in line with epidemiological studies that show an increased risk of autism in children whose mothers have had a severe infection or a virus during pregnancy. However, the link between the virus and this particular chemical called interleukin-17 has been really kind of understudied, and this particular research finding had actually shown definitively that interleukin-17 is critically involved. So they took this idea a bit further, and they wanted to see whether or not changing the microbiome would alter this interleukin-17 response, and then the abnormal behaviors in the offspring of mice who were born to mothers who had a virus during pregnancy. When the scientists used antibiotics to wipe out the common gut microorganisms called segmented filamentous bacteria in female mice, this did seem to protect the animal's babies from an impact of the simulated infection. The offspring of the mice given the antibiotic treatment did not show the unusual behaviors such as reduced sociability and repetitive actions. Remember though, it was antibiotic treatment in mothers who had been given a virus. It wasn't just antibiotic treatment in every mouse. So segmented filamentous bacteria are known to encourage cells to produce more interleukin-17. So this makes sense. They even gave bacteria collected from people in their feces to mice and let the bacteria colonize in the stomach of these mice, which then resulted in abnormal behaviors in the offspring. So are you grossed out enough yet? I certainly am. So what type of bacteria is important? This study doesn't necessarily address the good bacteria. And in a human, if you wipe out all bacteria, I can tell you it's not such a good thing. We need to know more about the segmented filamentous bacteria, and I'm sure there are microbiologists out there who know more in their thumb than I know in my entire head. I'm actually going to drop the limitations of the study because there's no need to explain them. This is a good project, and to be fair to the researchers, they didn't call it a major cause, the media did. I really hope to see more of this type of research because clearly the microbiome is an important part of understanding autism symptoms, particularly in those with GI problems. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.